Good morning. Good morning. Today's reading comes from Exodus 33 and 40. I'll start in 33, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshiped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Now from verse from uh, chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all of the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. Thank you, Paul. Um, before we begin, um, I just want to make a, a, a short announcement. Joanne Sadler called the other day and her husband's brother, uh, that her husband Forrest had died a few years ago. His brother recently passed away too. So uh, she asked that we would pray for them. And so um, let's open with a word of prayer. Um, Father, thank you for your mercy, even in the pandemic. Uh, Lord, that you are uh, still at work in this world. You haven't abandoned us. You haven't disappeared. Um, you still care for your church. And as we sang, we will gather one day at your throne that uh, not even uh, coronavirus can keep us from your love. And we're grateful for that. Father, I thank you for um, Joanne and, and Forrest Sadler and their uh, participation in this church for many years. And we pray for uh, Forrest's family as his brother now has passed away too. Lord, I pray that you would be a, a source of comfort and hope to them. 
and that um, though they can't um, perform a, a funeral, proper funeral with the current conditions, Lord, I pray that they would be grieving with hope, uh, that they would be trusting in the resurrection that, that is to come. And Lord, now as we turn to your word, I pray that you would speak to us clearly and strongly through it. Lord, that I would be a faithful messenger and that um, you would keep me from getting between you and your people. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So um, we're pulling into the end of Exodus, if you can believe it. Um, we're at chapter 33, and then I had Paul skip ahead and read the very end of the book, so chapter 40. So what it looks like is happening is um, this week we're going to look at this problem, uh, this offer, this problematic offer that God makes to Israel, um, and then we'll skip to the end and see what the result is. And then next week we will look at um, Moses' intercession and, and what changed, what made the change from this week to the next, or from uh, chapter 33 to the end of the book. And then the week after that, we'll look at um, the uh, fading nature of the Old Covenant. Moses' face shines, but it's a fading glory. And so that'll be the end. That'll be it. So we've got about two more weeks of Exodus, and then we're on to the book of Romans. And so I'm getting kind of excited uh, to head to Romans. But at the same time, just finishing out these last couple of narrative passages from Exodus has been really exciting. There's a lot going on in there. Uh, so this week uh, we come. This week is really kind of a an ending portion of the golden calf incident. Uh, so you remember a couple of weeks ago we, they they built a golden calf and Moses came down the mountain and corrected him for it. Then last week was Easter Sunday, and then um, this is kind of like the end cap of that story. But it really does continue to introduce this other issue that that comes up. And so um, I I would love to be able to preach this. And, um, and the next section together, because I really think they fit together, but it's just too long, so we'll break it up, and I hope that's okay. What we saw and what Paul read for us this morning was a very perplexing offer on God's behalf. Um, he tells the people, basically, I'll give you all the blessings, or I'll give you the, the, the rich physical blessings of the covenant, but I won't be with you. And so he, he makes that offer to them. Um, it, it is, I think, really relevant for us today because um, I recently heard a person talking about millennials, you know, the, the people who are leaving the church, that kind of generation that's taking off. And he said it wasn't so much because of some really strong uh, argument that people were abandoning the church. It was just indifference. And so I think this is kind of that question is, um, what is your connection to the covenant? What is it that's holding you to be part of this? Um, what do you have to, to hold on to? And so really this, this offer that God makes to them is really relevant for us because I think a lot of those folks who are leaving the church want the blessings, but not the bother. And really this comes from the fact that what we're dealing with is a very holy God. Uh, so we'll see that as we go through. Let's go ahead and, and start with, with uh, what's going on here. So remember last week, or the last chapter was the golden calf. So that has just happened, and now the Lord says to Moses, so Moses goes back up by the mountain to him, and he tells him, leave, and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt to the land I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will send an angel before you. Do you hear his language is already beginning to sound distant? Uh, he says, the people you brought up, whereas in last chapter, he said, your people who you brought up. So it sounds like he's beginning to, to back off. 
Last chapter, he said, I will send my angel before you. Now it's an angel. So just some rank and file angelic being, he'll go clean out the promised land for you. You're done. Um, he's already beginning to sound like he's beginning to back away from them. And it, it's a little startling uh, because this is the reaction to them having the golden calf is he's saying, well, if that's what you want, then, you know, this is, this is what we'll do. He mentions Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was his covenant that he made with Abraham. And remember, we've talked about covenants before. I said, God doesn't make covenants for himself. Um, his word, he knows he will carry out his word. If he says he's going to do this for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in his mind, in his understanding, he, he knows it's going to happen. He makes covenants for us. And so in this case, he, he mentions that covenant again. He mentions that covenant promise. And he says, uh, because I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I will give you this promised land. I will do that. I will, I will go clear out the promised land. You guys march on down, settle in there. And then he says the most startling thing. He says, but I will not go up among you. The, the, he's not going to go with them. And, and the reason he says that, he says, um, I won't do it because I might consume you on the way for you're a stiff-necked people. So look at that covenant promise for a second. He, he says that he will go and he'll clear out the land. He calls it again, he, he said this in chapter three, he calls it a land flowing with milk and honey. And what he's talking about with milk and honey is the, um, the goats and the herds will produce abundantly. It's gonna flow with their milk. There, there'll be so much milk coming from your, your cattle, they will just multiply greatly. And, and honey, honey was a wonderful product. It was something that, that you didn't get very often. It's kind of like chocolate for us. Um, and, um, the idea that the land would be flowing with honey means that it's going to produce enough flowers to, to produce enough or support enough beehives that there will be just this rich abundance. So you get the picture of this land as just gorgeous. But here's, here's how he promised it in covenant to, to, Moses, or to uh, Abraham. In Genesis 15, he says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. That happened. That was part of the covenant promise. They were in Egypt. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. Right down to the exact timeline, it's been 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Exactly what happened. The, the nine plagues and the Passover were these, these great judgments that brought, God brought on them. And when they left, the, uh, the Egyptians just showered them with good things. They, they carried a bunch of things out with them. He says, but for you, you shall go to your father and you shall be buried at a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That's what God is offering. Look, I will do this. I've already done the first part of it. Let's, let's finish this, but I won't go with you. And so what are they forfeiting? What covenant promises are they forfeiting if they accept this? Well, there's more than just one time when God makes a covenant with Abraham. He does it by my count three times. Uh, chapter 15 chapter 17, and then again in chapter 22, he makes covenant promises to them. So listen to what they will forfeit. Um, in chapter 17, God says, and I will give you, or, and I will give to you and your offspring after you, the land of your sojourning, the land of Canaan. Got it. We're going to get that for an everlasting possession. Sounds good. And I will be their God. But now he's saying, well, I'll give you the land, but I won't be your God. Um, chapter 12, he says, this, this is another blessing that they can't enjoy without God going with them. I will bless those who bless you, and I will dis, and whom 
and he who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all your families of the earth, or in all, in all I'm sorry, let me try this one more time. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If God doesn't go with them, then the families of the earth won't be blessed in them. Because we know what that means. The fulfillment of that is, is the coming Messiah. And then in chapter 22, he says again, in your offspring, all the nations will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So that was the promise to Abraham. If God doesn't go with them, they're going to forfeit all of that. That's part of what they lose. And so um, we sang and heard read Psalm 139. And I, it, as we were singing and reading it, I went, oh, we got a problem here. Because God says, look, I'm not going to go with you to the promised land. But Psalm 139 said, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your presence? So how is it that God is not going to go with them? Well, if he's everywhere, then he is at Mount Sinai. He's also in the promised land. He, he's everywhere. There's no place we can flee from him. But when he says, I won't go with you to the promised land, what he's speaking of is not geography, but relationship. I'm not going to go with you and be with you in this process. So I'll do everything that I've said. I will secure your way from Mount, from, uh, Mount Horeb all the way into the promised land. I'll send an angel who will wipe out the bad guys and you just move in. There's a house. There's already a vineyard. There's a field. Those will be sitting there waiting for you. You just move right in. Um, so he's saying that that will happen. He'll be there in a general sense, but he won't be there relationally. And that's the problem. That's, that's the issue here. So he, he's going to send them to this land flowing with milk and honey. And then he says, but I won't go with you lest I consume you on the way. Unless I was to break out in wrath against you. Um, is this that God is saying, look, I don't know what you guys are going to do, but I'm afraid my, my temper is just going to flare up. And when you do it, I'm going to come and zap you. And so, you know, I just can't trust myself around you. So go without me. Is that what he's saying? Well, obviously not. Um, God is not subject to mood swings. God is not subject to um, irrational flares of temper. That's, uh, we talked about a while ago, the impassibility of God. Uh, God doesn't have passions. He doesn't have these fits of anger and things. Um, when his emotions swell, it's with reason and it's on purpose. Unlike us, when we can get mad for various reasons. So what's he saying here? Well, finish the sentence and you'll get the answer. He says, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. This is not my problem. This is your problem. If I go with you and you behave as you have been behaving, this could cause the end of this covenant relationship because it might cause your death as things stand right now. The thing is, God is not saying this out of thin air, out of nothing. We just came from the, um, the golden calf incident. But Israel actually has a long history of worshiping other gods. Um, Joshua, at the end of his career, he is telling the people to, um, to finish the job that they've started in settling the land. And one of the things he says in chapter 24, verse 2, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So when God called Abraham, Abraham was serving other gods. So it started way back then. Um, chapter 31 of Genesis, when, um, when Jacob is going to leave his brother, or Israel is, is um, 
No, not, yeah, I'm sorry, not, sorry. Chapter 31, Jacob is about to leave Laban. He's been serving Laban for a long time. He's now got two wives, a bunch of kids, and he's, he's leaving. And what it says in chapter 31, verse 19, uh, Laban had gone out to shear his sheep. So he's out of the camp. He's away from his tent. His daughter, Rachel, stole his father, her father's household gods. So even when Abraham says, don't take a wife from amongst these people, go back to my people, they still have household gods. They still are, are worshiping these false idols. And you figure, well, at that point, maybe, you know, it was just a mistake or it was, you know, stealing them for the money or something like that. But when Jacob is about to return to the promised land, he's served Laban and he's heading back. Um, he tells his people, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. And that's in chapter 35. So Jacob, again, is faced with they've got household gods. So back to Joshua, it's even more recent. Um, Joshua, again, is talking to Mao about the Exodus, and he says, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river. Uh, the river there, it's the same word um, that is mentioned in chapter 24, verse 2, Euphrates. Um, that's what Euphrates means is the river. So what he's saying is put away the gods, uh, the gods that your father served in, uh, beyond the Euphrates, that would be Abraham, and in Egypt. He says specifically, put away the gods that your father served in Egypt. So we didn't see any of that because the focus was really mostly on what God was doing, what he was accomplishing there. But what we can tell from the, the word is, even in Egypt, they were worshiping false gods. So they've got a history of doing this. God's, God's warning that he might consume them along the way is based on reality. Um, this is something that the, the people have struggled with for a long time. So they might drift back to those old ways. They might drift back to what, what they had been doing. The problem is that God is extraordinarily holy, and they are not. And um, that lack of holiness on their part could be their undoing. So uh, here's what happens next. This is the response. So this is what God has told Moses. Now here's the response. Uh, when the people heard this disastrous word, they moaned, mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel. So this is a little weird because verse 4 is actually happens after verse 5, but it's reported first. So it's like Moses says, um, the people heard this and they were really upset. Oh, let, wait, let me back up and tell you why or how they heard it. So in verse 5, um, he reports that Moses had said, um, God had told him, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. Now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Um, so he repeats again, you're a stiff-necked people. Do you get the idea they're a stiff-necked people? If it's repeated, it probably is true. But isn't that a strange sentence? He says, now take off your ornaments um, so that I may know what to do with you. So what is the ornaments that he's talking about? It's not really clear. It, it's um, the, the Hebrew word is just basically ornaments. Uh, one of the ideas is it could have idolatrous implications. Um, and so remember when they made the golden calf, they took off their earrings and they threw them into the fire and out popped a calf. Well, that's what Aaron said anyway. They, they took ornaments already and made them into this, this golden calf. So it could be that these ornaments have something to do with pagan worship. Perhaps this is part of the loot they hauled out of Egypt. And it has images of uh, gods all over it. And so um, God tells him, take off your ornaments, put away that idolatry, that I may figure out what I'm going to do with you. Um, perhaps, though, 
It's at just, at, you know, at its minimum de definition, it's just a symbol of mourning. If they're really uh, mourning like, like uh, Moses said they are, you wouldn't expect them to be all dressed up in their finest and, and standing around um, putting on their, their good stuff and celebrating. Uh, so that's a possibility. The problem is it says that they took off their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So it appears to be more than just a period of mourning. It, maybe this is they're expressing real humility and saying, you know what, Lord, um, we have really messed up. And so we're, we're just going to put these things away and we'll be humble before you. We won't be all, all decked out like we thought we were. Um, and so that kind of raises the question then, you know, why were they so bummed out? They, they, they heard this disastrous word and they mourned. They were, they were very upset about it. So is this, um, you know, God's people, hey, look, we made one mistake and now you're threatening to leave us. And so we're very upset about this. And, you know, um, it just seems very unfair, but, you know, we'll do what you want. Is that why they're bummed? Is that why they're so upset? Um, if we had nothing more about the Israelites, this generation of Israelites, that might be a fair interpretation is to say, well, they were repenting, but God just was mad at them. Um, but we have a lot more. We know a lot more about what they did and, and what their journey looked like. Um, so what I would say is this was really a largely unregenerate people. And what I mean by that is most of these folks probably did not have a new heart from the Lord. They didn't have genuine, real saving faith like we would. Um, it was not that they didn't believe in God. They, they believed in gods, multiple gods. So they were, they were religious people, but they weren't necessarily um, true believers in, in the sense that we would hope for. Why do I say that? Is that just re overreach on my part? Like I said, we've got plenty of scripture to back this up. Um, I think the strongest one is Psalm 95, verse 10, 11. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. And so if you want some more proof, uh, some more evidence of what God's attitude towards these people were like and what they were like in general, uh, there's a bunch of different places to read it. There's three Psalms that I'd recommend. Psalm 78, Psalm 95, which I just quoted for, from, and Psalm 106. And when you read that, read those Psalms, it is a disastrous story of the next 40 years. So when I say that this was probably a largely an unregenerate uh, people, um, I really think that that's backed up by scripture is they really didn't care so much for the Lord. So then why were they upset? What were they wanting? Well, they're sad because they wanted the good stuff that God would give them without dealing with him. So think about the benefits that they have received so far from God already. Um, they, they, they knew that it was God that led them out of Egypt. Um, Moses did these miraculous things, but it was God that was accomplishing them. He's nice to have around for that reason. Um, when they got out of the, the wilderness, right, they came through the Red Sea. God killed the Egyptian army. They got to a place where there's no water, and they began to grumble against God, and God provided water for them. Um, when they went a little further, they ran out of food, and they grumbled against God, and God provided food for them. Um, he rained bread from heaven. When the Amalekites attacked, it was Moses up on the hill with his hands raised, but it was God who gave him victory. So they've got a lot of really practical benefits from having this God around. 
if we just didn't have to deal with them, if, if he would just be nice to us and, and we wouldn't have to deal with these things. So there's this temptation, this draw to have God's blessings without God. And, and really, that's a pattern that, that kind of reaches throughout Scripture, isn't it? The fall of Adam and Eve. Eve is promised, look, God doesn't want to give you all the good stuff. But if you eat from this tree, you'll get all God's good stuff, and you don't have to wait for him. If you just eat from this tree, you got it. You can have all the blessings without the God. And so she did. And then even later on, when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, Satan comes to him and he says, look, you know, I know there's this cross thing going on, and you can have everything that's promised to you, and we can skip the cross. If you just bow down and worship me instead of your father, you can have it. We can bypass what God wants, his holiness, and we can head right to the good stuff. How about it? So this is, this is not a, a new temptation, a new thing that shows up. Um, this is something that Satan has used over and over again, is the promise of having God without his holiness, God without his person. And so one of the commentaries, I thought, um, explained it beautifully. Uh, let, me, yeah, let me start with that. So this, this one commentary lists all the blessings that we could have from God if we could just not have God, if he just wouldn't be where. He says, the exam this is, their examples of the uh, Israelites remind us to love God more than we love his blessings. Many blessings come from knowing God. There's the blessings of repentance, of being able to see our sin and turn away from it. There's the blessing of forgiveness, of receiving a pardon from all our sin. There's the blessing of justification, of being declared righteous in God's sight. There's the blessing of sanctification, of growing in holiness. There's the blessing of adoption, of having all the rights and privileges of a child of God. There's the blessing of perseverance, of staying with God to the very end. There's the blessing of glorification, of having the free gift of eternal life. The blessings go on and on forever. But the biggest blessing is God himself. Knowing him is better than anything else we can imagine. So there are tremendous blessings that were offered and, and would it be something if God said, I will give you all of these things. I will set you free from your sins. Um, I'll, I'll let you live on the new heavens and the new earth forever, but I just won't be there. How would you feel about that? Would, would, does that sound like a good offer? Does that sound like something that you would want to take? John Piper asked this question um, a few years ago in a book called God is the Gospel. And this is how he states it. He said, the crucial question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, all the food you ever liked, all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? And every time I hear that question, it just stops my heart because we can so easily drift from the gifts that the giver gives and let them point us to the giver to just focusing on the gifts. These gifts are wonderful. I'll take that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll choose that. And then grab our toys, go in our bedroom and never tell mom and dad, thank you. Uh, we want the gift, not the giver. So it, it's, it's startling. It, it's a worrying thing because it's not stranded just with the Israelites in the desert. As we said, it happened from the fall. It happened at uh, this point in history. It happens later on when Jesus is tempted. And so it's, we're not immune to these things. 
So we sang this, this song, um, Our Beautiful King. So here's the question, is he beautiful to you? Is he beautiful? Is he beautiful beyond the fact that um, he gives you these wonderful gifts? He gives you these wonderful things. Um, could you, like Job, still say, I'm going I'm to worship the Lord. I'm not going to curse him, even though he's taken all of these things away from me. Job was righteous in his generation, even though God had taken all the blessings away. So would you take the covenant if God wasn't part of it? That's what they're being offered. It's kind of scary to think about. Uh, it's kind of worrying. So um, we'll get to the answer to this in a moment. I just want to leave the, the problem hanging. Now, what comes next is the story of the tent of meeting. And some of the commentators said, well, this seems out of place. It doesn't really kind of jive with what came before. I think it fits perfectly. I think it fits exactly with it. I don't have a problem with that. Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. So this is something that had been going on for a while. This was the, the pattern. Um, at Sinai, God would meet Moses up on the mountain. But at other places, when they started moving, he would go out to this tent that was outside the camp. And, and Moses would go out there, and that's where he'd meet him. And, and it wasn't just like beyond you know, the, the border. It was far off from the camp. So it was a long ways away. So don't you see, our, God is already distant from these people, even in this movement. And Moses called the tent the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Everyone who sought the, the Lord. So not everyone sought the Lord, but those who did. And not everyone didn't seek the Lord because some did. So that's what I mean. It's not fully, you know, this, this reprobate generation, but um, it was largely unregenerate because some of them didn't seek the Lord or maybe they sought him for wrong reasons. And so they would, Moses would go out to the tent and the people would rise up when they'd see Moses go out. And Moses would go inside the tent and he would stand at the door and then a pillar of cloud, that pillar that we saw earlier in the Exodus, would come and stand right at the door of the, the, uh, the tent. And that is how Moses would communicate with God, as Moses would go in the tent, the cloud would stand in front, and the people would stand and look. And it says that the people rose and worshipped. Well, if they're not a regenerate, trusting, believing people, why would they worship? Because, as, um, as one man said, you worship, everybody worships. You're going to worship something. So they have this physical presence of God, this, this cloud of glory in front of them, and they stand up and worship, and they're still not worship, worshiping the true God. They're, they're worshiping the pillar, but not the God behind the pillar. And so the, the most arresting thing in this is it says, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. That was the tent of meeting. That was the beautiful picture of the Lord's standing there talking to Moses. And um, it actually brings up a problem. Did Moses see God's face? Um, this is actually what I think is called a simile. It's, it's kind of saying it's kind of like uh, he, he spoke face to face, but not exactly. And the reason is because um, in uh, John chapter one, at the uh, end of the prologue, John tells us no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So Moses couldn't have done that because of John 1. But even in the immediate context of, of this, this chapter, um, what comes next is Moses is going to ask God and, and to see his face. And in, chapter, or in this chapter, in verse 20, God is going to answer, you cannot see my face, 
for man shall not see me and live. So when it says that God spoke to him face to face, you got to finish the simile as a man speaks to a friend. So the, the interface was Moses talking to this cloud, but the relationship, the dialogue that went on, the, the, the way that they spoke to each other was a man speaking to his friend. Hi, Moses, how you doing? How's, how's things going? Um, everything going okay in the camp? Um, what can I do for you? What do you need? That's the kind of relationship that he had. So it's not that he saw his face. It was that he had that relationship. And remember, that's what we said at the very beginning. How can God be omnipresent? How can he be everywhere and yet not go up with them? Well, because they didn't have this relationship that Moses has with them. And that relationship is the kind of relationship God wants to have. So that's not the end of this story, but I'm going to skip the middle point. We'll come back to that next week. And instead, what we'll do is we'll jump to the end of the story. So that was the problem that we saw, is God says, I'm not going to go with you. I'm too holy. I'm going to consume you along the way. Um, he would meet with Moses and speak to him, but he, the people stood afar off and God was outside the camp. But that's not the end of that story. That's not where we're left. So skip ahead to the very end of the book, chapter 40. Um, it, we started in verse 34. The end of verse 33 says, so minute, Moses finished the work. And what that's referring to is they finished building the tabernacle. Moses came and consecrated the tabernacle. There were offerings made to make it holy, to, to uh, cleanse it. And so Moses finished the work. And then this is the description of what the relationship now is like. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, all their journeys, wherever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out to the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle day uh, by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So it, it turns out in the end, God did go with them. But notice the huge change between the tent of meeting and now the tabernacle is referred to as the tent of meeting, and it's a special tent. Look at some of the differences. The tent of meeting was far outside the camp, wasn't it? It was well removed from the people, well far away. But the tabernacle, according to Numbers 2, is dead center in the camp. God prescribed that you'll set up the tabernacle, and then these tribes will be north, south, east, and west, and everybody will be around it, and the tabernacle will be dead center. So the tent of meeting was outside. The tabernacle's dead center. In the tent of meeting, Moses went into the tent, and God met him at the door. And so the pillar of cloud would stand at the door, but it was Moses who's inside. In the tabernacle, Moses can't go inside because the, tab the, the cloud is descended. It's over top of the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord fills it so much that Moses can't enter it. Moses can't enter the tabernacle, but what did he do up on the mountain? He went straight into the presence, the glory of God, the thunder, the lightning, the cloud. He went up and he talked with God. At the tabernacle or at the tent of meeting, he spoke with God face to face, but now he can't even go in. So God is not only with them, he is really with them. He is with them in a more magnificent way than he was on top of Sinai. So Moses would go out to the tent of meeting and then God came. That, that was what would happen. Moses would go out and the, the pillar would meet him at the door. But look at the tabernacle. Now, the pillar is sitting on top of the tabernacle, and it's always there, whether Moses goes to the tabernacle or not. And so when the, when the pillar moves, 
Now you don't have Moses come home. Now everybody gets up and follows the tabor, or the, uh, the pillar. So there's this, this significant difference of that relationship. It has changed dramatically. Uh, the temple uh, or the, the tent of meeting, it was only Moses and parenthetically Joshua who were at that tent. Everybody else stood at their tents a far way off and looked and beheld and watched. But what happens at the tabernacle? The entire tribe of Levi goes in there. The, the tribe of Levi is the one who's going to minister in that. They're going to, they're going to take the, the tabernacle apart and put it together. They're going to offer the sacrifices. They're going to cleanse it. They're going to do all of those things. So the people who are now admitted to God's presence is multiplied. Um, what caused this change? Well, we'll see it next week, but basically, if I can just sum it up, is they needed an intercessor. They needed somebody to come between God and them. So here's a question for us. Could we take God's offer? If God was to offer this, if he was to say, look, I'm going to give you the blessings of the new covenant, and I just won't be around. If Jesus said, you guys, um, you're, you're just too much for me. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the blessings. I'll, I'll give you all those wonderful things, but I just won't be there. Is that even a possibility for us? Is that even a live offer? Well, I would say no, it can't be, because the old covenant was deficient. It wasn't complete. The new covenant is so much better. That's a biblical way of saying it. The old covenant was fading away, and we'll see that in a couple of weeks, because it couldn't deliver what it demanded. The old covenant demanded perfect holiness. You shall be holy as I am holy. But it couldn't deliver that. What the Old Covenant could deliver was what it promised, which is somebody is going to come and be the better sacrifice, the better high priest, the better tabernacle. So it could deliver the promise, but it could never deliver the demands, and that's why it had to fade away. So look at the New Covenant now. Let's, let's consider the New Covenant. Could this offer ever be made to us, uh, even if we didn't want it, which we don't, if you're paying attention, we don't want this offer. Um, what is the sign and seal of the new covenant? The sign and seal of the old covenant was the Sabbath. It was physical circumcision. It was those kind of things. The sign and seal of the new covenant is the Holy Spirit. You have been filled with the Holy Spirit. You have been sealed. He is a guarantee. He's a down payment for what we are about to inherit. So whereas the old covenant had external signs and symbols, external seals, they couldn't deliver what they asked. But the new covenant does, because when Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to come and live in our hearts, we're given a new heart. We're not inclined to be stiff-necked and bent away from God. He bends us towards him. So the sign and seal of the new covenant says you can't really get offered that same thing. God himself sealed you. Also, the new covenant was made not with the blood of bulls and goats. The new covenant is made in Jesus' blood. A blood that speaks a better word is how Hebrews talks about it. That means that right off the bat, when, when blood is spilt, sins are forgiven. Now, in the Old Covenant, you, you killed a bull because you did this sin, and that sin was forgiven, but it didn't take care of the ones that came afterward. The New Covenant is made in Jesus' blood. It's a better blood. It's a, it's a more perfect life. And so right from the beginning of our covenant inclusion and our, our interaction with God in this covenant relationship, we're forgiven. We start out in a position of being forgiven. So could we ever be stiff-necked enough where God would go, well, I don't want anything to do with you? That would say that Jesus' atonement wasn't enough for us. It, it's not sufficient. The next thing is Jeremiah 31 and, and uh, Hebrews 9 and 10 say this, the old covenant was insufficient because it was broken. 
the Israelites broke the old covenant. They shattered it. But what God promises in Jeremiah 31 is, I will make a new covenant with them. Unlike the old one, this one can't be broken. Because I'm not going to base it on their performance. I'm going to do something else. There's going to be another kind of covenant. That's why the Holy Spirit is the seal. And then finally, with this new covenant, if you remove Jesus, you don't have a covenant. It's, it's not like Jesus is a, is a benefit of the covenant. He is the heart of the covenant. He is the one who brings it to us. So for Jesus to say, look, um, we'll, we'll maintain this new covenant thing, but I won't be around, it, it, it's not possible. He is the blessing of the covenant. He is the benefit of the covenant. It, it's not that we're going to receive a piece of property in the Middle East. We're going to receive the entire world. It, it's not that we're going to get a King David or a King Solomon to come and rule us. We're going to get God himself to come and rule us. So if you remove God from this, if you remove Jesus from this offer, the, the, the covenant is no longer a covenant. It, it's not the covenant that we've been offered. And so again, when you consider this, when you consider the covenant, is Jesus beautiful? It is, is what God has done through Jesus Christ beautiful? Because that's the blessing. That's, that's what we get. Um, receiving the whole world, that's just a plus. That's, that's you know, a nice thing at the end. But we get the whole world because that's where Jesus is going to be ruling and reigning. And so is he beautiful to you? Is he sufficient for you? Um, if he's not, then perhaps you're focusing too much on the gifts and not on the giver. And so you, we need to stop and back up and take a look at, especially some of the Psalms where God is extolled, like 139 was just beautiful this morning. Thank you, Ramey. That was just perfect to remind us, where can I flee? If I wanted to flee from you, where on earth would I go? You're everywhere. You're always with me in relationship. And that's the beauty of the new covenant. That's the offering of the new covenant. So next week, we get to see, and it's a picture, it's a, it's a beginning image of how that new covenant works for us. Why is it that God didn't just, instead of coming and saying, look, I'm not going to do this, why did he offer that to them? And then when they said, no, that's not what we want, why did they change? Why do we wind up with the tabernacle at the end? Shouldn't he have just said, well, you know, all the plans I gave you, scrap them, we're not going to do it. Um, we, we'll get there next week, and that really is Moses' intercession. And we learn a whole bunch about God um, in the midst of that. And then, like I said, the week after that, we get to see Moses' face shine. And I was just arrested as I was reading through the New Testament. Um, it's not all over the New Testament, but there's one place in the New Testament where that shining face of Moses is held up and said, as glorious as that was, it wasn't enough. It wasn't sufficient. And so we'll end on that as well. And I think it was, those all kind of come together to remind us this glory isn't from Moses, it isn't from your pastor, it isn't from your worship leader, it isn't from um, the wonderful church building we worship in, or the cathedral, or, or whatever. It is the glory of the Lord, and we're just trying to capture bits of it. We're trying to just hang on to little pieces of it. So that's, that's the, 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 the way that the tabernacle ends. Because remember, the story, this portion of the story is God with us. And now we get the threat, maybe God won't be with us. But when it comes to the new covenant, we get that promise, God with us in a whole new way. And it's just so much more glorious. So with that, let's close in prayer. Lord, you have ascended into heaven. You're not physically present with us anymore. And when you ascended, you sent your Holy Spirit. Your Father sent the Holy Spirit to us. And Lord, Holy Spirit, you've sealed our hearts. 
You have given us a new heart on, on a heart of stone. You've replaced it with a heart of flesh. Instead of writing your word on a tablet of stone, you're writing it in a fleshy heart. You are renewing our hearts and our minds, our desires. And so, Lord, would you please, for all of us, show us your beauty. Remind us daily how gorgeous you are, how wonderful you are, what your grace means, what your mercy means, what your kindness to us means, what it means that you have promised us with promises that are better than any of the other covenants. Lord, help us to cling to the, the things that you have done so that we might cling to you instead of the things that you promise. As glorious as they are, as wonderful as they are, we truly want them. Lord, we don't want them if they keep us from you. So Lord, draw us closer to you, we pray. Help us to, like Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, to not make these mistakes, to not be idolaters, to not lapse into those old ways, but Lord, to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Cause that to happen in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.